Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our interview for this episode is Alova Sey Arova Sogbe. Alugasei is a PhD student of epidemiology and public health at Swiss Tropical and Public Health Institute, University of Basel in Switzerland. He holds a Master's of Public Health from the University of Cape Town, South Africa and is currently working on the application of remote sensing data to bridge the gap in ground-level particulate matter data in South Africa. His research interests include environmental exposure modeling and observational studies assessing the association between environmental exposures and health outcomes. Our guest today is a specialist scientist at the South African Medical Research Council leading the climate and health research program. She is also a lecturer at the University of Pretoria, research associate at the Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University and associate professor at the University of Johannesburg. She holds a PhD in public health from the University of Otago and a master's in social science in geography and environmental management from the University of Natal. Her research focuses on environmental health in Africa including personal solar ultraviolet radiation exposure and skin cancer prevention, personal dosimetry, health risk assessment and air pollution related disease measurement and prevention. She is a member of the Global Young Academy, past vice president of the National Association for Clean Air, co-editor of the Clean Air Journal and founder of the Environmental Health Research Network. I'm excited to welcome our guest Dr. Karadi Wright. Welcome to the show, Sai and Karadi. Thank you Shahzad for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be on Atmospheric Tales podcast interview Karadi. Thank you very much Sai. It's wonderful to be here with you today. So, uh let's get started. Can you provide our listeners a broad overview of what environmental diet means uh with intersections of complex themes such as air pollution, soil, noise and water pollution, some most critical issues of our time? That's really an interesting question because if there was ever a more pertinent time that people can understand and appreciate what environmental health means the time is now essentially environmental health talks about the relationship between people the environment animals fauna and flora and it brings together the factors that exist in the environment wildlife or vegetation or the loss thereof those factors can become risk factors that then affect human health and well-being. So one of the most classic examples would be polluted air. Pollution might come from industries or it could actually come from the cook stove inside your home. The polluted air which enters your lungs and then make you sick. And not only sick but also unhappy. The purpose of environmental health is to prevent that type of risk to prevent those bad exposures that can come from different environmental sources as i said it's probably one of the most classic times to explain to people the concept of environmental health as we are living in the covid-19 pandemic i'm sure many of the listeners would know this SARS-CoV-2 virus comes from a zoonotic disease which means that it originated in some kind of animal and there's still debate over which animal that may be and how the path of transmission led to human exposure but that is exactly the intersection that they spoke about between people environment nature 
and animals that led us onto this journey where the interconnectedness between something so far away on one continent, an animal on a continent far away from where I live in South Africa, has had a very direct impact on me here in South Africa today. So the COVID pandemic is one excellent example of environmental health, and there is an enormous drive to prevent this from happening again. The United Nations Environment Programme a few months ago released the Frontiers Report entitled Preventing the Next Pandemic. I worked on that report with many other people, and essentially it's about thinking more holistically about our environment, especially the word one health, that we are all one, and we need to consider these interconnectedness and these risk factors that can influence human health and well-being. Thanks for that concise uh, introduction about environmental aid. Now two questions on environmental aid issues as it relates to the continent of uh, Africa. Most African countries are witnessing increasing population and the corresponding increase in urbanization, industrialization, and other socioeconomic activities. Often, an increase in economic activities leads to increase in population exposure to environmental risk factors like air pollution, pesticide use, and climate change. There's, of course, a lot of diversity of geography, history, culture, and other aspects among and within countries in Africa. What are the major environmental aid teams that come to mind for various regions of the continent? Are there aspects that are unique to some regions and similar across the continent? So there's been quite a lot of research done about environmental health across Africa, particularly because we have many populations and subpopulation groups in Africa living very close to the environment, particularly people living in rural areas where they draw water from boreholes or from uh, local streams or rivers. And also in urban areas where, for example, there could be an informal settlement or a slum settlement which does not have any services. The variety in Africa is actually very large when it comes to what are the environmental challenges that people face. And this makes it such an interesting topic to research because at the other end of the spectrum, we have people living in very urbanized areas, in very formal structures, and yet they still face environmental health risks, which might seem strange because it's not like they're living directly off the land. They go to the supermarket for their food. One really common environmental health challenge, which affects millions of Africans, no matter where they live, would be air pollution. Air pollution is ubiquitous in the environment. And as I mentioned before, it can come from industrial emissions, can also come from natural sources. So in Africa, we are a very dusty continent, which means that we do have a lot of particulate matter in the atmosphere. But it can also come from household air pollution. So people who rely on the burning of solid fuels, for example, coal and wood, and that's not necessarily only people in rural areas. That happens in urbanized areas as well. So I would say that probably the most common theme for an environmental health challenge across the whole continent would be the air pollution problem. And there are many, many initiatives and interventions being taken to try and alleviate those health risks posed by air pollution. But then there are challenges that specific regions will face. A region, for example, that has climate-sensitive resources or 
uh, relies on rain-fed agriculture, particularly in the context of climate change and how we are seeing a warming of temperatures and a drying or changes in rainfall patterns. This really puts pressure on the rain-fed agricultural sector. Another area that would be a challenge from an environmental health perspective would be the mining areas, so the copper belt. Also, uh, the artisanal mining, we have a lot of that in South Africa, where in very dangerous situations, people are trying to retrieve metals from abandoned mines. And this poses a large environmental health risk, for example, to lead and mercury exposure. And then the final one I wanted to mention really around malaria, because that is still an enormous challenge in many places, not only because malaria can result in mortality, but because of the use of pesticides to try and eliminate the occurrence of the mosquitoes and the indoor residual spraying, which has also been associated with adverse health outcomes in some regions across the continent. Africa countries are currently undergoing epidemiological transition from communicable diseases to a double body of non-communicable and communicable diseases. In 2015, lower respiratory infections replaced HIV AIDS as the leading cause of death in Africa, which accounts for about 1 million lives per year. From your assessments, what are your thoughts on African countries' public health preparedness for these changes? Much has been done to try and ensure that the basic healthcare system is in place. In many countries in Africa, you might visit a clinic, have to take two taxis to get to that clinic and spend several hours waiting outside the clinic to see somebody. These are the sorts of challenges which we need to overcome if we are to think forward about preparing for the eventuality of additional burden of disease. If we don't get the basics right first, and in many places there are problems impeding that from happening, for example, corruption, political will, lack of training and capacity among our healthcare professionals, and other challenges which limit the effective running of healthcare systems in our countries. So what my support would be for is to ensure that we keep up at making sure that those systems are in place, that they work like well-oiled machines so that we can serve people in the best possible way. If those systems are working properly, then it is more likely when we start to see changes in the prevalence of diseases, for example, as we are seeing for the impacts of air pollution on human health and increase in diseases like bronchitis and pneumonia, your low respiratory infections, we will then be able to attend to the additional number of people visiting the clinic because we'll have additional staff in place who are trained to look for the symptoms. There'd be additional drugs. We would be avoiding drug out situations where there's just no drugs available. And we'd also be thinking about how can we prevent these infections in the first place. So we need to take a holistic approach to the healthcare system. It's not only about treatment, which we are still struggling to get right, but there's no point in treating a person with a lower respiratory infection only to send them back to their home and an environment where potentially there's household air pollution, which is one of the causes of the respiratory infection in the first place. So we need a more holistic approach towards prevention and treatment within the structure of the healthcare system and the WHO building blocks for the framework 
of a healthy public health care system. Indeed, we need a holistic uh, resilient systems to address the obvious change in epidemiological disease body in Africa. You have been involved in conducting research on several environmental health topics, especially in South Africa. One of the themes that your research has focused on is on personal solar ultraviolet radiation exposure and skin cancer prevention in South Africa. Can you tell us about the major risk factors that can cause skin cancer and how skin color can factor into this discussion? So one of the passions of mine, which is a part of environmental health, is personal solar ultraviolet radiation exposure. And skin cancer is just one of the impacts of excess sun exposure. Some of the others include cataract, which affects the eyes and vision. And we live on a very sunny continent. And the prevalence of cataract is relatively high in most African countries and probably one of the leading causes of blindness on the continent. The other health impact from too much sun exposure is immune suppression. A person who works outdoors, for example, faces these risks not only of ocular excess exposure and cataracts, but also potentially immune suppression. And the classic example would be fever blisters that develop around your mouth. The challenges, as you've already identified, is that the risk is not evenly distributed among people of different skin color. So deeply pigmented skin is almost like having natural sunscreen. So people with deeply pigmented skin, they may still get skin cancers, but it's less likely to be from sun exposure or solar ultraviolet radiation exposure. Skin cancer often occurs on the soles of the feet, palms of their hands, or on parts of the body which have been scarred or burnt, injured skin, which then becomes less pigmented and more susceptible to the development of skin cancer. And the last point around that really is that it's not sun exposure that is playing the most critical role in skin cancer development among people with deeply pigmented skin. For me, what I have been spending a lot of time on is the missed diagnoses. So because skin cancer is not especially common in people with dark skin, when it does occur, it is often misdiagnosed. And the challenge then is it's a very delayed prognosis and the outcome is not good. The survival rates for somebody who has a melanoma on the sole of their foot, for example, is definitely not as good for a black person as it would be for a person with a fair skin. Because in many of our hospitals, our medical staff are not trained to be able to identify skin cancer in deeply pigmented individuals. In one instance, I know of a person who visited their district hospital, had an acral lentiginous melanoma on the sole of their foot, was severely debilitated, couldn't walk very well at all. She was seen by a doctor and given Bactroban, which is sort of a anti-infection lotion and a plaster and sent home. And it's exactly those kinds of situations that I strive to change so that we will ultimately have a reduction in the deaths from skin cancer among people with deeply pigmented skin in Africa. So do you think this is an issue that needs further discussion across Africa and the world, especially in the context of climate change and increasing frequency of extreme heat waves? 
So this is really an interesting idea that we think about skin cancer and solar ultraviolet radiation exposure. And then we put that in the context of climate change and global warming. As we know that many parts of the African continent are warming here in Southern Africa. Projections suggest we are going to have almost four or more degrees increase in our average ambient temperature by the end of the uh, century. But it's actually a misnomer because the ultraviolet radiation which comes from the sun that is associated with skin cancer in humans is actually not heat. That's infrared radiation. So in the context of global warming and increasing ambient temperatures, because this is the the blanket of greenhouse gases that form around the earth and keep the warm air in, that warm air is being warmed by infrared radiation, not solar ultraviolet radiation. In fact, you can't even feel solar ultraviolet radiation. And that's why if the person does have fair skin and it's the middle of winter in their country and they spend an extended period of time outside, they will still experience sunburn, even though they didn't feel that sunburn at all. It's same where people might say they got windburn, but actually if they were on a very snowy hill slope and there's a lot of reflection from the UV light, they would also experience sunburn, even though the temperatures are very, very cold. So it's important to not confuse ultraviolet radiation and infrared radiation, because it's actually the infrared radiation that we can feel. When we talk about increased frequency of heat waves and extreme heat or the number of hot days, which we're already seeing, then we are talking about climate change. And that's quite a different issue to the solar ultraviolet radiation one. And yes, this is a hot topic that really needs additional research. We need to understand the relationships between temperature and both mortality and morbidity in the local context within African countries, if we want to put together prevention interventions so that we do not see an increased burden of disease from extreme heat events, we need to create early warning systems and we need to create models that will be able to say when our weather services are forecasting a period of a heat wave or hot days, what do we need to do? What do we need to put in place in our healthcare system or from the weather service in terms of warnings to make sure that people take the necessary uh, prevention actions. And sometimes they're as simple as avoiding excess activity outside, uh, shifting of uh, work hours, and making certain that people drink water. I would say that there is a great need for both additional research, but also policy and decision-making and thinking around extreme heat in Africa going forward in the future. Thank you for that. The next questions would be on the importance of working collaboratively to solving the already identified environmental health issues in Africa. You are the founder of uh, Environmental Health Research Network. A focus of the Environmental Health Research Network in South Africa is to provide a platform for academia, researchers, government departments, NGOs to consolidate on existing research and identify gaps to be filled. Can you tell our listeners why you started the EHRN and what are its key objectives? It was surprising for me to realize the other day that the Environmental Health Research Network is now more than 10 years old. I am chuffed that we have kept it going this long. 
It's actually self-funded. I do not have any funding for it, so I fund this myself because I feel strongly that there needs to be a platform where researchers and policymakers, as well as non-government organizations and anybody who's interested in environmental health can gather. And of course, it's a virtual gathering. So essentially, it's a platform as in a website, but it also has a listserv. So people share not only their latest research. So if you're a researcher, you can share your latest publication. Once you've joined the network, you become a member of the listserv. But we also have government sharing documents with us. So they might share, for example, the draft National Heat and Health Plan for South Africa. That could be shared via the network and you could reach a variety of different people, different stakeholders to provide input to that document, especially during the time when it's open for peer review. So the network was really to try and develop and coordinate research, information and practical resources on environmental health matters, but at all levels. It's also a way for young emerging researchers to engage with a community who are interested in environmental health, with more senior researchers, but especially with the environmental health professionals or practitioners. So in South Africa, historically, there's been quite a large divide between the people doing the research in environmental health, often sitting in the universities and the research councils, and the professional practitioners who are registered with the CPSA, Health Professions Council of South Africa, and they are employed by government. So they go and train at a university and then they enter the workforce similar to a medical doctor would be seconded to a specific area where they go and do their community service and they then end up working for a local government municipality. The struggles that are faced by those professionals are very seldom researched. They are sitting with rich data sets because they are the people in the communities every day, testing water, checking on air pollution levels. They are at the grassroots of the communities and they know their communities well. And there was this big gap between the researchers desperate to try and do science to create evidence to assist the professionals, but there was no connection between the two. And that's essentially where the Environmental Health Research Network came in to share ideas, to share knowledge and data, to essentially help each other improve the quality of environmental health in the country. Congratulations on your network 10 years anniversary. That's a fantastic initiative for interdisciplinary collaboration in South Africa. What has been the progress on some of these objectives? What lessons about effective transdisciplinary collaboration can other African countries learn from the South African experience? Several years ago, I attended a leadership program and my take-home message from seven very intense days of working with others, doing team building activities and learning all about project management and, and leadership skills was that life is all about relationships. That phrase has stuck with me since then. And I would say that the Environmental Health Research Network's success stems from the fact that it's based on relationships that mean something. The only way a young researcher or a young person who works as an environmental health practitioner or even somebody working within the Department of Environmental Health can get by or make a difference is by collaborating with others. And that means you have to have relationships. So 
I think the network's success is that over these last 10 years, a very strong connection has been made with the decision makers and the policy makers. I have on my phone the person that I can dial to get to the Department of Health, quickly ask a question while I'm working on a particular research project or if I'm in the field, I want to engage with the community. The first person I'm going to go and see is the environmental health practitioner responsible for environmental health in that community. I need to know who that person is. I need to have a good relationship with them. I think there's a need for transparency in your goals and objectives of whatever you're doing. There needs to be sharing and learning. There also needs to be humility. You have to understand the nuances within a community where you will work. And that really comes from having a relationship with the people who understand what's happening on the ground. And I do think that transdisciplinary collaboration in environmental health is fundamental because we are bringing together many different disciplines. You've got chemists, atmospheric physicists, you might have a microbiologist who knows all about water. You might have a psychologist because there are impacts of air pollution exposure on neurological development. And so you're bringing together a melting pot of different subject areas. You have to be willing to listen and share and find ways to move forward on difficult, challenging problems in a holistic, comprehensive manner. And that's where I really do believe that the one health concept where we are all one, we all have to live together on this planet. And that's where the relationships between the people who help look after all those different elements have to be solid to come together and work together. There's a lot to learn from your network. There's an ongoing debate about the best model for collaboration between African researchers, institutions, and researchers and institutions from the global north. What are your comments or suggestions on what the best model could be? I recently read something about the challenges of collaboration between North and South. While I acknowledge that they exist, I stand firm on the concept of life is all about relationships. It's very difficult for people to gain respect from somebody if they don't know who that person is. When you are collaborating with somebody from the very beginning, when you're talking about the ideas, the conversation never starts about work. It always starts about something to do with the person's life. It might be to ask them how they are, what is the situation in their country. For example, that's a very pertinent topic at the moment because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're all concerned for each other and each other's health. And that is one way that you can start to build respect between each other. As I said, that needs to start right in the very beginning of any collaboration. It's certainly not appropriate, I don't think, to just look for someone's name, contact them via email without even having a conversation with them. And in today's world, we are fortunate to have virtual platforms to do that. There's really no excuse to not try and make relationships with people in the country in which the research is going to be done or whatever collaboration is going to be done. So I stand firm on the need for strong relationships, to be cautious when engaging with researchers from other countries. And in many of my projects, this has been done extremely successfully. It starts with a relationship, then comes to an idea, and then you build together, recognizing 
the strengths of those from uh, more developed countries or higher income countries versus the strengths that exist in low and middle income countries. And I think that really comes from the right people. And that's why I say it's important to be cautious who you collaborate with to ensure that your principles and work ethics are borne in mind. Thanks for your comments on these debates. The next question is about how political leaders, researchers, uh, funders, and other stakeholders perceive environmental health issue in Africa. Most stakeholders underestimate the risk from environmental exposures uh, affecting funding opportunities for research and policy actions to protect the public. How do you think we can navigate these challenges? So environmental health, I think, has for a very long time not been completely understood. An example of this is, I mentioned earlier, I worked on the UNEP Frontiers report entitled Preventing the Next Pandemic. And engaging with ecosystem researchers, plant ecologists, and others who work more in the plant or animal sciences, it's very difficult to explain the difference between the health of the environment and environmental health. So the former is talking about the quality of water, the quality of air, the state of soils, the state of land use and ecosystem change, ecosystem services. But environmental health is that, but more, because you bring in the concept of people and animals interacting with each other and interacting with the environment. So one of the biggest challenges is really helping people understand what environmental health means. And I think because it has in the past, from a administrative perspective, in the old days, it would have been something like a health inspector who would be checking on abattoirs or on incinerators, quality of food and so on. And because their scope of practice of an environmental health practitioner is so big, it expands from port health all the way down the line to some of those others I've mentioned about incineration, for example. It is such a broad area that I think true understanding of what environmental health means makes it challenging when it comes to raising awareness about it, as well as getting political buy-in. So notoriously, environmental health professionals are struggling in two ways. They often are underfunded. So there is a lack of capacity. In South Africa, there are not enough environmental health professionals per 10,000 of the population. Now, this is a challenge because, in fact, they are unemployed people who are trained and can do the job, but there's not enough funding to support additional people in those roles. Now, that is a political decision about where the funding is being allocated. And that political decision might be different if there was a true understanding of the value of environmental health and the prevention of risks that affect human health and well-being. Because so much emphasis is placed on treatment and cure, and I, I mentioned this before, the understanding of the value of prevention of these risk factors and exposures is still missing. And that is a core element of environmental health today. The political buy-in, understanding, action, funding will really only come with a better understanding of what environmental health means, not only in the research domain, but definitely in the policy and decision-making domain too. Now let's talk briefly about your personal journey in environmental health. 
you have an MVABCV that cuts across two disciplines, uh, geography and public health, with a lot of organizational experience in facilitating collaborative work. Can you tell us how this has shaped your career path and your advice to young researchers? When I started out my academic career, I really didn't know where I was heading. I knew that I loved exploring topics related to the environment and understanding atmospheric processes. And I wanted to find a way to connect the two. And that really led me to this field of environmental health. I came from a geography and environmental management background, but I knew that there had to be relationships and connections to human health and well-being because not only did I want to save the planet but I wanted to save people on the planet and make sure that people could live the best lives that they could in the healthiest way that they could. Almost falling upon this field of environmental health was fortuitous. I think it's probably one of the best disciplines that you can bring together so many different fields of expertise. And it gives me the opportunity to use on a daily basis, not only my skills in, for example, analyzing questionnaire data, which we would collect from households in community around water. Do they store water? Where do they get their water? What kinds of water-related diseases, for example, diarrheal disease, do they experience? And how can we connect the dots to see, well, if we could try and intervene and change behavior, working with people to understand how they respond to interventions, but also whether they have the agency and the choice to make such interventions, is a very powerful way to implement all the skills that I've learned. I get the chance to do that kind of data crunching work with cross-sectional survey data. I get the chance to go and interact with people and understand mums' perspectives. Uh, For example, in a community we worked in, in the Northern Cape of South Africa, where it is extremely hot. Temperatures can exceed 40 degrees Celsius on a daily basis during summer. People actually put their beds outside of their homes and sleep outdoors. It's a very strange thing to see um, when you drive or walk through the community. All the beds are outside. And in this area, we worked with people and used a special roof coat to paint the roofs uh, white, but with a special paint that helped to reduce the indoor temperatures of those homes, often metal homes, by more than six degrees Celsius. And speaking to women in that community, and one woman in particular was sitting under a tree, which was where her, her bedroom was, she very excitedly told me that she could not wait to have a white roof so that she would finally be able to iron her clothes indoors because she had to iron outdoors and that to her didn't feel right. And it's those kinds of stories that are so moving and give me the drive to to continue to do good work, to serve society and make difference, even a small difference like ironing indoors. I think everything that I've done through my career in bringing together the atmospheric science, understanding climate meteorological variables that are part of environmental health and how they impact human health come together in this melting pot of what is environmental health. And young researchers who are looking to embark on a career in this area really need to have some key skills and elements. I think you have to be curious. You have to 
and not give up easily when you can't solve difficult, wicked problems. And you need to have an inherent desire to serve society and make a difference in people's lives. In today's world, it's not enough to just produce research manuscripts. You have an obligation, particularly if you have a PhD degree, that is a license to serve science for South Africa, the same way that a doctor has a medical degree to treat people who are ill. And so you have to use your skills, your knowledge, network well to make a difference, to translate your research into meaningful interventions or materials that will help people live better lives. Thank you for your time, Karadi. It's been a very great time recording this podcast with you. Thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed these thought-provoking questions, and it's been a real privilege and honor to be a part of this podcast. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Dr. Karadi Wright, and our interviewer, Oluwaseya Rosogbe, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.